a USA Today newspaper that I read in an article this week back in June of this year. The title of the article was, The Supreme Court Killed Student Loan Debt Forgiveness. Now what? A key route to having some or all of your student loan forgiven or erased was blocked by the Supreme Court. And literally, that was disheartening for millions of people who thought they were eligible for loan forgiveness. To this day, the White House continues to fight for the loans to actually still be forgiven. The article I read goes on to say that Americans don't agree on loan forgiveness. Some are for it, probably those who have loans. And there are many who are not, those who do not. Um, As it turns out, though, loan forgiveness is not the only kind of forgiveness that Americans cannot agree on. In fact, all you have to do is look at our culture and you'll realize there's a great divide in our nation concerning forgiveness in general. Another article that I read from a Christian magazine this time said, uh, actually the article title was, Whatever Happened to Forgiveness? That article chronicles the fading, as they put it, the fading of forgiveness across our national scene. The writer says, and I quote, Western society struggles with forgiveness, whether it's the BLM or the Me Too movement or other victims of discrimination or abuse. He goes on to say it's deeply controversial when people suggest that the perpetrator might merit any kind of forgiveness. He says quite rightly, or so many think, Many would say it's the victims that need our compassion and concern. Those people who have been the offense or have done the offense, they deserve nothing, nothing less than punishment and judgment. Truly, I think it's obvious, but maybe not to everyone, that no one, including the Bible and Christians, are arguing for forgiveness without justice. But there are plenty of people in our land today that are arguing for justice without forgiveness. Our society, without a doubt, has become a cancel culture. It has adopted the idea, as one professor said, that forgiveness victimizes. Anyone publicly trying to offer forgiveness to a perpetrator is now condemned in no uncertain terms and has actually been told to stop saying that you forgive people because for so many it's wrong emotionally and socially. See, that's what they want us to think because that's what our world is about. That's what's behind the conflict of forgiveness. Let me just delineate to you what's behind that sort of thinking when it comes to forgiveness. There are basically three secular models of forgiveness. One I call cheap grace, and that's non-conditional forgiveness. And really what it does is emphasize for the victim to get help therapeutically. In other words, the whole thing is about the person who has been violated, and it's to liberate them from anger, to help them and their inner healing. So it's not about anybody else, it's just them and what happens on the inside. Little grace emphasizes the perpetrator meriting forgiveness. In other words, over long periods of time, they have to pay back, often reparations or the like. 
And then the most popular version that's becoming almost in vogue now in American culture is the no grace model. Forgiveness is abandoned completely in favor of justice only. You will get what you deserve, nothing more. All of these contrast with the biblical Jesus model of costly grace. As one author I read this week puts it, costly grace in the Bible is different than all of the other ones in this way, that it has two dimensions. See, costly grace and forgiveness both has a vertical and a horizontal aspect to it. See, what's behind the secular movements in the models is that there is no vertical aspect. Like almost every part of our culture that has tried to divorce itself from God, so has now our definition and practice of forgiveness. In our world, there is no God and therefore no forgiveness. See, our society on almost every level has tried to remove God, and in so in doing, they are also now seeking to remove forgiveness from it. As one politician said, there's no future without forgiveness. Our society cannot live, and can I tell you, and you can see it, and you cannot love without forgiveness. Uncountable numbers of shooting deaths in our urban areas are the result of revenge attacks. Notoriously by gang members, but also equally popular by family members. So many of the mass shootings, read the reports for yourself, they are attacks by gunmen who have been nursing grudges for months. Let me give you an example. A man who had a falling out, well, listen, with the six or seven, seven people that were on his carpool. They did him wrong and no longer would they let him ride in their car, in their carpool because of all the things he was doing. So he decided and did this. He met, methodically shot and killed six of them. By the time the police got there, he was shot numerous times. And as he was lying on the ground dying, he had the time to explain each one of the grudges he had against each one of the men. And the only thing as he died and had his last breath, the only thing he regretted is that he did not have the opportunity to kill the seventh. These are just a few examples of the unforgiveness iceberg that lies in the heart of the human race. The submerged anger, resentment, holding grudges, and so on. That is what is happening in the hearts of the people in our country. But that's outside the church. The secular models of forgiveness, it shouldn't shock us about cheap grace or little grace and even no grace. But what is shocking is that often it isn't a lot different within the church. See, at times we too fail at forgiveness. So are we, are we failing as a church in forgiveness? Let me ask you more pointedly. Are you failing at forgiveness? What about your marriage? You live together in the same house. But because of the bitterness and the anger and unresolved conflict, you may live together, but you don't have a life together. And the reason? Unforgiveness. What about your family? 
What about the months? What about the years that have gone by without a phone call, without talking to someone, the silent treatment, years that you haven't attended a family meeting? See, walls have been built, have they not? Between parents and teenagers, between siblings. Oh, and I'm not just talking when you're young. I'm talking walls that have built for years into our older age. What about your church family? What about the people that you once served with, the people that you were close to? What happened to those relationships? Jesus wants to address our failures of forgiveness this morning. Proceeding our text, in the paragraph before, he tells very specifically about how you handle when your brother sins against you. He wants to give you the theology, and then our text is simply an illustration of the preceding paragraph. And in it, he starts off, before he gets into the parable, shocking Peter, and I'm sure the rest of the disciples. In Jesus' day, the rabbi said that you were extremely extravagant in your forgiveness if you were willing to forgive another brother of yours three times of the same sin. You have really gone out of your way. If you forgive someone three times for the exact same thing, you are a saint. Peter, wanting to make sure, knowing Jesus and the great love he had for people, that he went a little bit over so in our text in verses 21 and 22, if you'll look there, you'll see Peter ask, Lord, how many times do we have to forgive our brothers? And then he says with a question mark, and I'm sure it was a big one, seven times? Oh, wow. Seven? That's twice, more than twice than everybody else was willing to do. Peter thought, I'm safe. I've gone overboard. Surely Jesus would be happy with that number. And Jesus responds to him, oh no, and in the strongest adversative in the Greek language he could give, no, not seven, but 77. Say what? 77 times? That's way beyond the prevailing model. You know why? Because Peter didn't get it. Jesus wasn't looking for a number. He's looking for a new model of forgiveness. See, one that doesn't exclude God Rather, one that includes God. One that is not like the model of men that has got limitations. No, one that is like the model of God that has no limitations on it. See, Jesus wants to give us a model of forgiveness this morning that without him, you can't do it. In fact, beyond that, it seems almost absurd. That's why it's shocking. Does it shock you? Are we good at three times? Are you good at seven? Oh, try on 77 and beyond. Is that you? Oh, you'll see how important it is as we go through the text. Let me say it up front in one sentence. We will fail at forgiveness unless we follow the costly grace model of Jesus. Now, as I said before, we're going to look at just two things, and that's it this morning. Because costly grace has two dimensions, a vertical and a horizontal. Let me unpack them one at a time, and we'll take a look at them as we apply them to our lives. First and foremost, look at verses 23 through 27, the vertical aspect. Now, I want you to know in the parable Jesus is telling that the master, the king, the Lord, however you look at him, he is God. And then, obviously, you know the servant is all of us. 
The king has servants, many of them. And so there comes a day, we might say, he's going to give them account. They're going to give an account to him. And so he comes upon his servants, and one in particular comes to him. And it says in verse 24 that the king's servant owed him a debt of 10,000 talents. Now, every commentary that I read... They all agreed that this was deliberately unrealistic by Jesus. Let me tell you why. Because an ordinary worker in his day, if they had an ordinary uh, uh, wage, they might be able to, might, but it might take them a little longer, in one year's time working full time, they might be able to pay off a debt of one talent. This is 10,000 talents. So you're talking about over 10,000 years of debt. Today's average worker, I looked up the statistic, makes approximately $40,000 a year. In our terms today, that would make the debt about $400 billion. That's more than the GPA of 80% of all the countries in the world. In other words, Jesus designed this parable to know this. You're not paying it off. He's not paying it off. That's why he chose the number. He wants us to see that the debt that the man owed his master was infinite. It was immeasurable. It was humanly impossible to pay it off. Because he wants, in the end, for you to put yourself in his shoes. See, that's your sin debt and mine. It is immeasurable. It is infinite. It is humanly impossible for you to pay it off. You'd have to have 10,000 lifetimes, and then you'd still fall short. That's where we stand. And this guy knows it. He knows he's way beyond over his head. And he gets emotional about it, wouldn't you? Look at the text says. The Bible says that he, in verses 25 and 26, he falls on his knees. When you get on your knees... You're either worshiping or you're begging, and perhaps he's both. He's begging. He's, the Bible says he's sorrowful. He's sad at it. He asks for patience. It's the Greek word that means this, macro, meaning long, suffering. That's the old King James word way of saying it. But it literally means having a long way till you boil. In other words, it takes a long time for your anger to get really, really bad. And he's saying, have patience. I know you're angry. I know how much I owe you. And I know you're really mad at me. He goes, but just give me some time. Patience with me. Don't make me do it right now. Have mercy on me, he's saying. And verse 27 says, the master sees him and out of pity, and it's not your typical word for mercy, it's not your typical word for love, it's a word that says he was moved in his gut. In other words, the guy was so desperate, probably in tears, groveling at his feet, begging for mercy, that they was moved. the master was moved by it. Perhaps he started crying too. The Bible doesn't really say. But it moved him so much that in the same verse it says, he released him. He freed him. The debt was binding. He was in chains, basically, financially. And it says, he released him, set him free, forgave his debt completely. When I was first starting out as a youth pastor, I'd never, my dad had always provided vehicles for me, but this is the first car that I ever got that was my own. And Chris and I had been married a very short time, and we bought a new car. Looking back, it was probably stupid, but we did. 
And so we had it just a very short period of time, I think less than a year. And we were going out of town, and my friend that worked in the ministry at that church with me, we went to seminary together, and he said, hey, while you're gone, my car's broke down. Can I borrow yours? Yeah, you know, because you're thinking the same thing. You told him no, right? I thought about it. But I told him, okay. I go, what are you going to go? He goes, I'm only going to go to the grocery store and stuff like that to fill up my car, you know, to go places, do stuff. So just fill up your car, and I'll put the gas back in it for you because I'm not doing very much with it, just the necessities. I go, fine. I was only gone for a few days. I came back, and he had wrecked my car. Someone had gone down the whole side of it. He wrecked it, and it went all the way down, this huge gash dent. And I looked at it, and I said, we are no longer friends. No, I didn't say that. I said, what happened? I really didn't want to hear the story. It was rhetorical. How could you? That's what I really meant. And then he told me this. I'm a seminary student. I don't make any money. I can't pay to have it fixed. Thank you very little. So I figured it was $2,500. This was 1988. It might have well as been $400 billion because I couldn't do it. So now I told him, I forgive you. You know what forgiveness meant? Because the debt that I owed for that didn't go into thin air. So you know what I meant? I absorbed the cost. He did the crashing, and I did the cashing. (laughs) You know what forgiveness is? It's a form of voluntary suffering. When you move to cover the cost... See, it's moving from the perpetrator to owing to you paying. See, that's what happened in this text. See, the $400 billion, it didn't just dissolve into thin air. The master had to pay it. He had to absorb it. He had to suffer the loss. Every time we choose to forgive, instead of retaliate, we are making the choice to bear the cost of someone else. It's exactly what God the Father has done for us. If you know Jesus Christ, that's why he died on the cross. That's why he died the way he did. Because we had an infinite debt that we could never pay. And the only way that we could be forgiven is if he completely and radically absorbed the entire cost for us. The enormous sin debt we owed was far too large. large. We could never make it up. We could never work for it. In fact, to say to God, if you'll forgive me, I'll go to church every week. I'll try harder to be a, a better person. It's as futile as someone saying, I'll pay off the $400 billion five bucks a week. It's pointless, isn't it? I mean, it's pointless. It's pointless also to grovel and say, I'm so bad. How can I wreck your car? How can I have this massive debt of $400 billion? You know, I just, and just beat yourself up over and over every day and thinking somehow if you beat yourself up enough that eventually you'll be worthy of forgiveness. See, that's not what happens with costly grace. Costly grace is about God himself absolving us of our debt. Instead of you suffering, Jesus suffers in your place. Well, Pastor Walker, what is it? What is it that enables God to forgive us so radically and completely, even though he himself is absolutely holy and just? 
The answer is the amazing love of a king who becomes a servant. See, the servant, we're going to see in the next part of the story, becomes a king and he grabs the other guy by his throat because there is no forgiveness like that. But the forgiveness comes from an amazing love that the one who actually was a king became a servant. And that's why Paul says in Philippians 2, 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not something to be grasped after, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took on himself the form of a slave. And being found in fashion or in the form of a slave, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even a cross death. See, that's the amazing love. That's absorbing sin debt. That's why Jesus died. That's costly grace. But remember, the Jesus model of forgiveness, unlike the secular ones we've mentioned earlier, is different because it has a vertical one dimension and a horizontal dimension. And let me tell you why that matters so much, because they are interdependent on one another. You cannot, hear me, this is crucial. In fact, it is the very main point of the entire parable. You cannot have horizontal forgiveness without vertical. In fact, Jesus is going to say in no uncertain terms that human forgiveness is dependent on divine forgiveness. Now listen, Jesus is not saying that our forgiveness by God is earned by our forgiveness of others. He's not saying that. But what he is saying, and he's saying it very strongly, and we should all take heed, he's saying our forgiveness by God enables us to forgive others. And he wants you to put the two together because if you do not have the ability to forgive others, you have not been forgiven by God. And so the end of the parable and the quote-unquote moral of the story Jesus says it this way. Listen to this. Verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you. If you do not forgive your brother, listen, from your heart, the only usage in the Gospels of that phrase. Hear me. Jesus is saying to all of us today, everyone in this room, he's saying this. If you have truly been forgiven by God vertically, then you will be willing to forgive others horizontally. Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Listen, as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Do you see how Paul weaves the interdependence of vertical and horizontal? They go together. They cannot be separated. Matthew 6, at the, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, verses 14 and 15, here's what he says. If you forgive your brother his trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive yours. But the counter, look at the next verse, 15. But if you do not forgive your brother his trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive yours. See, it's a two-way street when it comes to forgiveness. The parable that we're looking at this morning is a story about a man asking for forgiveness and then being utterly and completely unchanged by it once he receives it. Is that you? Jesus would ask this morning, how could you sit here? How can you say that you believe that my son died for you and the way that he died for you and all that he did for you? And you can sit here and say, but I don't forgive others. He says, it's not possible 
It's a story, this parable is, about forgiveness failure. The failure to put the vertical and the horizontal together as if somehow it doesn't matter. See, there are people who fill our churches all across this nation, perhaps some here this morning, who think or say they've been forgiven by God, but truthfully in their relationships with people, they have not been transformed by it. If we have truly grasped and experienced the costly grace of Jesus, then God's mercy must make us merciful. It must. So in our story in verse 28, Jesus does something with the wording. He starts off by saying to emphasize to you and me the drasticness of this. He says the severity of his unforgiveness. The same servant, the same slave, verse 28, the very same one that was forgiven by his master, an impossible, infinite, that guy, yeah, that guy is unwilling to to forgive someone else. And this is not between a master and a servant. This is four times, he says it, a fellow servant. A guy on the same level. This isn't someone over him. This is someone equal to him. And notice that he compares the two debts. Did you say that? see that? The one guy owed 10,000 talents, 400 billion, impossible amount. But the other guy, look at verse 28. You know what he owed? 100 denarii. That was 100 days' wage. So if he made $40,000 a year, you know what we're talking? He could pay it off in three months or a little bit over, and it was about $10,000. We're talking $400 billion versus $10,000. How could you in the world be given this huge forgiveness and you can't handle someone else has this to you? See, is that not our culture? See, failing at forgiveness is what we do. Why? Because we have removed the vertical from the horizontal. There is no experience of vertical forgiveness in our culture. Therefore, we should not be shocked that we live in a canceled culture. But that should not be so here at Faith Baptist Church. Did you see what it looks like when the vertical has left out? The man had no thought of his master He had no thought of all the forgiveness that he had received. And so look at the verse says, 28. He seizes him. It literally means to grab him. Imagine this. The master did none of these things to him on a far greater debt. But this guy goes and see, this is a friend of his, a fellow servant. So he grabs him and be grabbing him by the shoulders, pulling his shirt close to him. Because the next thing the Bible says is he begins to choke him. Literally putting hands around his neck shaking him and choking him and say, pay it now, all of it. Oh, is that not our culture? We disagree, so we loot and we burn and we mass shootings when we won't forgive. This is our culture without God. Violence, revenge, hate. Sound familiar? See, that was the Roman kingdom and their version of forgiveness. But Jesus is saying, it's not mine. That's not my version. Did you also notice, listen to this. It's almost like deja vu in the passage. The guy comes to the master and says, here's what I owe, it's billions of dollars, and it says these things about him. Falls on the ground, begs him, asks for patience. He tells him he'll pay it all. And then watch the text. Go down to the second little episode, and the exact actions And the exact words 
of the guy who owed us far smaller debt, he uses the same lines. And you would have thought, if you had been given a $4 billion forgiveness, when you thought and remembered all the things that you said that day, how you would be so amazed at how good the master was to you. And so wouldn't you have thought that when this guy falls before you, oh, that was like I did. Have patience with me. Oh, I said that. And he begs them for time. I'll pay you all. And he goes, oh, that's all the things that I said to my master. Not a one of them. It doesn't move him. It doesn't change him. It doesn't want to give him any time. It makes him violent. You know why? Because the whole thing about the master was eradicated. He should have remembered, but he didn't. Is that you? But you don't know what they said to me, Pastor. You don't know what they did. You don't know how often in my marriage. Yeah, you don't live with my family. I know. 400 billion is what you owed. The Bible says, forgetting all about the vertical, verse 30, he refused. Instead of he released like the master did him, the contrast is, no, he didn't release him. He didn't forgive him. He refused to do it on a smaller level. And then it says, not only that, but he put him in prison. See, that's his own version of cancel culture. He didn't try to cancel his debt. He tried to cancel him. He put him in prison. In the ancient Near East, when you had bankruptcy, the practice was this. You, and if you had a family, all would become slaves until you could pay the debt. And if you couldn't pay the debt, and it was so great that you could never work it off, they threw you in prison. This is what the guy is saying to a guy who owes him 10000 Prison was not brought up in the first issue. Now it is. I'm going to throw you and everyone about you have your family in prison, and you'll rot there. That's his version of forgiveness apart from God. See, he was a servant acting like a king. So all the other servants that watch all this, they report, they report him to human resources. And he's get called into the master. And this isn't going to go well. I think he knows it. So here's the first indictment. You wicked servant. He knew it was over. There's only two other times in the Gospels you wicked servant is used. And can I tell you this? It's not someone who's a believer both times. One, they say, take the wicked servant and cut him in pieces. The other time, they say, take the wicked servant and cast him into outer darknesses. Both of them say this, where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. This is a matter of eternal judgment. When you get called wicked servant, this isn't you're a bad Christian with a little problem in your life. This isn't you backsliding. You're lost. And what was the point of it? Here's the point of it. The guy is condemned Forever. Why? Because vertical and horizontal forgiveness go together. See, in verse 33, the master says this, should you, have not, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant? Let me tell you in the Greek what it says. The word must is in there. You must have had mercy on him, didn't you? In other words, the master said this. It wasn't optional. 
Look what I get. You can't say that it's optional. Well, I'll think about forgiving you. Maybe I will. Maybe if you earn it off. No. Here's what the master says. Are you serious? You must have forgiven him, shouldn't you? You must have. But did you catch what it says? Verse 33. As I had on you. See, he lost total thought of that. Didn't have that in his mind. He thought that he could separate the vertical and the horizontal from one another. He didn't feel the weight. He was unmoved by the obligation of the master's forgiveness. See what Jesus is saying? Vertical forgiveness and its reality in your life is proven not just by receiving Jesus in your heart, but by giving Jesus' forgiveness into the hearts of others. That's why verse 35 says, from your heart. This isn't about forgiving because you have to. This isn't about stapling forgiveness on the outside of your life. This is about a transformation on the inside, the deepest kind of person in the place in your life that you are. This is about Jesus down at the roots of your life. That's how we are able to forgive in a culture that knows little or nothing about it any longer. The Puritan songwriter and poet William Cooper said this, To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. See, God's forgiveness changes us. It changes our hearts not forgiving others out of duty, but delightful choice because we are still, to this day, overwhelmed the radical forgiveness of our God. Let me ask you, has God's forgiveness changed your heart? The answer and the certainty of that comes from not what you say to him, but what we show to others. Have you seized anybody lately? Anybody in your family felt your hands around their throat with a little metaphorical choking? How about, have you imprisoned anybody? Have you left them and say you're on your own till you pay it off? All of that after you've been freed? After your infinite debt has been paid? See, or perhaps maybe this is true. Maybe knowing how much God has forgiven you, you've been able to look into the mirror and say, how can I not forgive? It's not that there isn't pain in it. It's not that it isn't easy. It's not that it isn't difficult because it is. But it's possible and more than possible, it's a must if you've been forgiven of an infinitely greater debt. Let's build a cancel a cancel culture at Faith Baptist Church, not one that cancels people, but cancels their sin. And let's be a people who are known by costly grace like our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, Could you be humble enough for a few moments today to look deep into your heart and at the same time look at your marriage, look at your relationship with your children, look at your relationship with people in our church, people at your job, people in your 
family that may not even live around here anymore. What's the model that your forgiveness follows? Cheap grace, little grace, no grace, or costly grace? Do you struggle absorbing the sins of others and the debt that they owe you because of what they've done? Perhaps this morning a visit to Calvary, afresh and anew, would help to see the Savior who took your $400 billion debt and instead of screaming to his executioners, I'll repay you for this, he says, Father, forgive them. And that included you. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, would there be someone here to say, I'm a child of God. I know the forgiveness of the cross of my Savior. But I'll be honest, Pastor Walker, in one or more instances, I'm failing at forgiveness. And I need to be overwhelmed by God's forgiveness in my life, again, afresh and anew. And I need to make a call. I need to write a letter. I need to sit down and have a visit and a talk. I need to do what Jesus would have me do and forgive others horizontally. Pray for me. Would you just slip your hand and I'll do that? Slip your hand up all over the auditorium. Anyone, thank you. I see numerous hands. Anyone else? Thank you. Thank you. I need, thank you, thank you. I need to put the vertical and horizontal back together as a Christian. Perhaps you're here this morning and you don't know the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. You're still trying to say, oh, Jesus, I'll come to work. I mean, I'll come to church every week. I'll, I'll try to be a better person. I'll try to work my way. Have you ever come to the realization that you can't buy it? Your debt is unrepayable, but his grace is more than enough to forgive all of your sins. Would you come today? Would you say, Pastor Walker, I need Jesus' forgiveness, the Messiah, the King, the Lord who died in my place. I recognize he is the one. And I want him to be the one in my life to forgive my sins so that I could follow him the rest of my days. If that is the cry of your heart, would you raise your hand and I'll pray for you as well. Just anywhere, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Anyone else? All over the auditorium, balcony. I need to know the forgiveness of Jesus as my Savior. Father, you've seen hands and hearts. You know the lives of every individual here. You know the struggles they have in forgiveness. And I'm sure that they are hard, they are difficult, painful, tearful, perhaps ongoing. And it would be a lot of humility necessary to forgive. A lot of humility to restore and reconcile and to make it right with people. To initiate conversations. But the power of the cross is more than sufficient for all of those things and more. I pray that you give them that grace, Lord Jesus. That they would be tender-hearted as you've been to them. I pray for the ones who raise their hand indicating this morning that they don't know for sure that they've ever received by faith the forgiveness of sins that Jesus alone can give, that they've ever repented and turned their back on their self and self-salvation 
to put their trust in you. I pray that by your grace and spirit, you'd overcome their unbelief and draw them to yourself. They might have the forgiveness of sins through your blood. Please, Master, be glorified in all these things. It's for Jesus' matchless name I pray. Amen.